Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are looking for your support. As you know by now, the Tortoise Shack relies entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. And the best way to do it, in fact, the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis is join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is in the top of the podcast that you're listening to right now. Click on it. Have a look around. There's over 1,300 podcasts there, all plea free. Our entire back catalogue, including everything from Reboot Republic, Echo Chamber, Police, Glow West, Shrapnel, and lots and lots and lots of members-only exclusives. And if that's not enough of an incentive, you will be getting the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you are keeping the podcast free for everybody and helping keep the mics on at this left-leaning progressive podcast platform. If you're listening to this before Thursday, the 28th of September, we will be live in the Sugar Club in Dublin City Centre that evening. We have a fantastic lineup, including two very special guests of former, what you would call, RT talent, who are about to blow the whistle on what has gone on in terms of two-tier work practices. Tickets for that are at the bottom of this podcast. It's, it's the eventbrite.ie link. And if none of that floats your boat, you can still help us by recommending us to a friend. We rely on you. Word of mouth. No ads. No sponsors. But please do consider clicking on patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to Shrapnel Podcast. Tonight we're joined by Eileen Shrooney and as usual my wingman Sam McElwain is with me. How are you Sam? I'm not too bad. The sun is shining. We're back into the second spell of summer, I suppose. Yeah, it's nice to see a bit of sunshine before we move into eternal winter. Although we'll be locked in a bedroom with the window open, it's it's not as enjoyable. Yep, absolutely. Well, Eilish Rooney was born in Brown Square and grew up in Ballymurphy, West Belfast, and she's written about that community that she grew up in. She is an academic specialising in transitional justice and human rights, with a particular focus on women's rights. Eilish is also an active advocate for respectful civic conversations around the referendum on Ireland's constitutional future. You're very welcome, Eilish. Thank How you very you? much, Gareth. I'm doing the best. It's such a beautiful Belfast evening, isn't it? Absolutely. It's good to see. It's good for the soul. Yeah, it is. So I think you're going to start off with a poem that you've written. Would you like to introduce it and let people know what it's about and how it's important to you? I certainly will, Gareth. Um as you say, I grew up in Ballamurphy and this poem that I'm about to read is from Ballamurphy Poems. It's a set of poems I wrote following the inquest into the Ballamurphy massacre. And that inquest brought a turnaround, I think, in the politics of victims' justice in Northern Ireland, in as much as the families who fought for you know, 50 years to have justice, actually felt that they received the legitimation of their campaign in that the 11 people who died there, 10 of them killed by the army and one died after an altercation with the parachute regiment, those families felt that the inquest gave them truth. And the Justice Keegan said at the end of the inquest, that all were entirely innocent. At the time of the killings, the news went out that the paratroopers were shooting at gunmen and one gunwoman. 
And many people across Belfast and maybe across the world believe that. And on many occasions, we've had to retract stories that were published at the time about people and injustices that were done in the media, as well as to families individually and personally. So during the inquest, as a result of being um, a person in contact with Spring Hill Community House, I attended some of the inquest hearings, not realising that at some point in the future I would write some poems. So I'm very, if anybody's interested in the poems, I'd be very happy to send them copies. They're free. There's a donation. It's up to yourself. And, you know, my, my public email address is at Ulster University, e.rooney at ulster.ac.uk. I'd be more than happy to send them. Um, I'm going to read the first of the set of family poems that I wrote. And this one is for Frank Quinn. At 19 years of age, he was a father of two. We lived across town when my mother heard about the priest and a man shot dead in Ballamurphy. Someone will have a sore heart tomorrow, she said. Little did she know that it was our Frank in the field. He went up to help Father Mullen. The news reported that gunmen were fired at. Some believed the story. They shunned our grief. Decent neighbours wanted us to stay. The best brother anyone could wish for. He loved his wife Anne, daughter Angela, and was looking forward to another child. Francis was born fatherless. Their sore hearts never mended. We've waited a long time to hear the word said, the truth told, innocent. Thank you, Eilish. That's very powerful. And I think the thing that really impacted me about that poem, and obviously I, I know the, the the stories behind it and the personal loss, it's the fact that, you know, a young man grows up fatherless. And to me, that is transgenerational trauma writ large. It's there. And, you know, um, it's it's awful because now we're experiencing that. That's got mental health um, implications for people in the present. Absolutely. And another thing that struck me, just taking you back, you know, there was that stigma, the sort of uh, labelling of of the um, victims of the Bally Murphy massacre as as being involved in nefarious activities. But you've talked in the past about growing up in Bally Murphy and going to St Rose's and how you felt that kids in Bally Murphy were actually othered by the teachers in St Rose's. I'm really interested in that, and I think it's something Sam might come in about as well, about his own experience. What was it like coming from Bally Murphy and being treated that way? What 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 did it make the community feel like, and, and yourself as an individual? Uh, just before I, I go on to that, um, Gareth, the, the Francis Quinn that was born was a girl. F-R-A-N-C-E-S. You'd know that if you looked uh, at the poem. Apologies. So it was his daughter. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. I, no, yeah. it was his daughter. Yeah. Um, I love hearing what you've just said there, Gareth, because it's true that othering is something that people in working class communities experience just as a matter of everyday life. And the othering that I experienced happened way before troubles or protests, way before that. Within Ballamurphy, as a community, I mean, I think I grew up in the best place in the world. I thought I grew up in the best place in the world. Our estate was alongside 
Belfast City Cemetery, the Black Mountain, the Falls Park. When I was a kid, we had an outdoor swimming pool in the Falls Park. It was a playground I lived in. It was an estate built on the outskirts of the city post-Second World War. Um, For my mother and father, it wasn't a playground. There were no shops, there were no buses, there were no schools nearby. Um, But the hardship that they experienced, we didn't experience as children. We just loved the place as a playground. And it was only whenever I started going to school, the local Catholic school St Kevin's, that I realised there was such a thing as, I suppose I didn't think of it as social class, but as social difference. The children from Ballamurphy were treated as, somehow or other we picked up messages lesser than. Lesser than the kids who lived in the White Rock red brick houses, but more established, or who lived along the road, in houses that weren't that weren't as good as our houses, actually. <laughs> I used to think our rents were more than theirs. How come they get treated better than we do? You know, the daftness of a child. But that learning about social difference was a lesson that was acquired at school and also in church. Um, you know, there were there were women who went to church with lovely hats and people who seemed to be better off than us. I say seemed to be because I want to question the whole idea of better offness, you know, in a sense, but they had more resources. So we learned in Ballamurphy that we weren't quite up to the mark, quite as good. And as time went on, actually, and people who could leave Ballamurphy left it, we became known as like a sink estate, an estate which was the author of its own problems. When I knew, and we all, you know, as people living there, we knew we weren't the author of our own problems. But that experience of being othered can damage and diminish your own sense of worth. And, you know, to an embarrassing degree. Um, The first boyfriend I ever had, I was in in a, a wee sweet shop in the falls. I got a Saturday job. And this uh, fellow who used to deliver tater crisps had a van and he asked me out one evening, which sure I was tickled pink. And uh, first time I'd ever been with anybody in a van, uh, in four wheels, let's say. And uh, on the way home that evening, it's a sort of shameful admission. I didn't let him leave me at Ballamurphy. I asked him to leave me at the White Rock. What was that about? That was about me feeling, me knowing that to be from Ballamurphy somehow was a stain on you, that you carried the burden of how you and your people were seen. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I mean, I grew up in the Glencairn Estate. Um, I'm watching how the schools were closed, the shops were closed, the amenities were shut down. How, how the, the, the society and property st- the estate and the people then suffered because of it. Because if you wanted to go to the shops and you had to have the black taxi fare or the bus fare and people didn't have that as well as the shopping money. So I know, I know exactly what you're getting there. And the shame bit. Yeah. I mean, I was, I went to Methody for a whole few months because I thought I could, and I could have learned something. And when I got there, I I discovered that I was othered beyond belief. You know, I was, I was the only boy in the year that got free dinner tickets. Um, you, you, You know, it, and at that age, when you're 11, uh, 12, you, you feel that. And I know what you're saying about when you pe- people drop you home. Don't bring me to the door. Drop me off the top of the street. I don't want you to see how my front garden looks. You have this yep. built shame into you. And it shouldn't be. 
because Correct. you know and I know they're no better than me. Um, yeah. And just because maybe they've had a break or two in the right direction, or sometimes they haven't. And what I see is that I want what they have, and they're probably looking at what I have and saying, well, we want that. Um, yeah, grow, growing up in those estates, Ellie, it wasn't, wasn't a barrel of laughs with it. Um, but you're right in what you're saying. We didn't know any different either, primary school. We, we thought the Glen Kern estate was brilliant. We had parks, we had rivers, we had mountains. We explored. There was green open spaces. The people down the shankle used to look down their noses at us. I, I thought um, they had the two up, two downs. They had the brick yards. They didn't have the gardens we had and, and the greenery. So it was sort of, they were probably looking at us going, at least you have parks and you have, and I'm looking down the shankle thinking you're looking down your nose at me. And it probably wasn't that way. But when you went to secondary school, you, you definitely seen the difference. I mean, and it, it came down to what school bag you had. And what labels you wore. Um, I had white socks. Everybody has the black socks. You know, white socks were just a thing yeah. you wore. So it, it, uh, the PE kit, the PE kit cost more than what my mum brought in in a month. Um, yeah. And then it was like, come to sports. You, you've got to play sports. Yes, it's on a Saturday morning. What do you mean it's on a Saturday morning? Um, how am I getting across town? You know, you just that kind of thing. It just it just starts to build on you and wears you down. So, yeah, yeah I, I see that. I'm going to go to something that you talk about in some of the interviews you've done before in the intersectionality of things and how not only are you from a minority community, whether it be loyalist or, or Republican working class, but you're also a woman and you're also this and you're also that. And it's the crossroads of all those things. So although I came from a loyalist background, I probably had it better than the loyalist women in my in my community mm-hmm. because sexism or chauvinism or uh, toxic masculinity was there. Um mm-hmm. But I, I will say this out loud first, and I have said it before. I grew up in a in a in a in a matriarchy, not a patriarchy, because the women in my family were the strong ones. That may not be been the case; they may have been subservient. But as far as I was aware, on the surface, the women held our family together um, and run the household. So I I grew up with a strong feminist trait in me because my my mother brought me and my brother up extremely well. But could you talk a bit more about the intersectionality and where, I know you said before, it's a bit of a boring paper, but you make a sound a lot more exciting than what it is. Uh, if you could explain what that is for our listeners. I will for sure, Sam. And I suppose the thing is, what you and I have been talking about just now, you and Glenn Kern and me from Bella Murphy, we've been talking about the experience and how we absorb values from other people's attitudes. Um, in fact, That experience of mine, I brought into my teaching and community development where on one of our classes every year, I would always ask people to look at your BT outputs and inputs. And by that, I mean, you know, each area across the north has a set of statistics that tells you about social deprivation or wealth in the area. And what we used to do was everybody went out and brought back the statistics for their area. And then they compared the statistics with that of the university at Newton Abbey. And Newton Abbey is one of the wealthiest districts um, in the in the north. And they used to look down and see where they lived and how it affected things like how long you live, longevity, your health, how more intimate a thing can you have than your health? And the reason I want to interject that, Sam, before intersectionality is because I was keenly aware of this and people in the classes from all districts, you know, loyalist, nationalist, Republican, middle class, they got to understand that the things that you and I are talking about right now aren't simply a matter of attitudes from institutions and other people, but they're a matter of the distribution of resources across a society. 
So I just want to kind of plug that one simply because in a way it's an introduction to intersectionality. And in some ways it helps to explain the resilience and strength of the women you lived amongst because they had hardship to face and they had hardship to face that lots of other women didn't face. And in a sense, you know, what doesn't, you know, what do they say? Hard weather makes good wood. Do you know? And in some ways that might help to explain how they became the strong women they were. Intersectionality is the name of a theory. Now, whenever you would say that in a class, you'd see people's eyes fading from you, you know, lack of interest, because theories are nuisances of things for people who are studying and for people who are wanting to get on with getting their homework done and getting getting the degree. But the re- it was a theory that came from practical experience. A woman, Kimberly Crenshaw, in the United States, a black woman herself, started to investigate the circumstances of black women in the facing the courts. So they could claim discrimination on sex grounds or on uh, on gender grounds or on cla- on uh, race grounds. And she realised from obs- observing women that they had to make a choice. But in fact, their experience of discrimination combined gender and and race, for starters, and very often and most forcefully social class. So she developed this idea of intersectionality where these forms of discrimination intersect and combine to form actually an approach and a way of seeing women's lives that is more complex than normally we see. And, and that struck me as something that was needed in transitional justice studies. It was needed in my own life indeed. It was needed locally in Belfast because as I saw it, the great work within feminism in my generation, you know, had achieved huge progress and had achieved an o- consciousness raising like the, like the consciousness you have, that women recognised that women were treated as unequal in every sphere of life. Um, and if you want to make the exception the family, we're going to have to do a study on the family. I've set that aside, okay? But, you know, they were treated unequally, they were positioned unequally and Introducing intersectionality said to feminism, look, we can't look at women as one thing. All women are not the same. Women stand at different intersections. Women who have resources stand in a different position from a woman from Glencairn. And that difference in positioning is a radical difference that has to be attended to. And when it came in my own case to me studying women's experiences of conflict here, it was so obvious and elemental that women's, you know, gender positioning, class and location within social identities and political identities were absolutely crucial to understanding the experience of women, but also to understanding why women were largely left out of the account. I'm really interested in that, Eilish. And as a historian, I'm going to pull the conversation back a wee bit here to what Bally Murphy was like at the start of the Troubles, you've talked about the Valley Murphy Massacre and the profound effect that that had on people who lived there. Um, but w- one of the things um, people often talk about is when the violence started in both communities, it was a very masculine sort of culture. And I think over time, Republicans have been better at promoting the female voice, or at least been seen to be better promoting the female voice 
even if we're looking at the the troubles, the female combatant, as it were, whereas loyalism has never been as proactive in in that regard, and it's something myself and Sam have talked about. So ju- just going back to that time of flux, you know, with um, Bally Murphy, New Barnsley, Moyard, all the stuff that was going on, the population movements, the upheaval, and the emergence of violence. What was it like for women? at that stage in that community to find themselves in in that sort of flux and the turmoil that was going on? Well, picture yourself at your children very often. On occasion, it would be a husband, I would say, at the time that I'm talking about. You know, I was, uh, I was in 19... Actually, I was married in 1968. The weekend I was married was the Civil Rights March to Derry. Buntalot happened at that during that march, and that emergence of civil rights seemed then remote to me and remote to people like me in Ballymurphy. Um, it seemed like students doing something that you saw on TV that was civil rights in the states that black people were doing. It seemed remote and not about our lives. Roll on into 1969. I am the mother of one child. Uh, by the time 1971 comes across in internment, I'm expecting another baby any day. And so in the years in between, what you have is women doing what they do in a situation where there's uproar. For the most part, they try to keep their children, for all parts, they try to keep their children safe. And at the same time, their children are being attacked. You know, by the times you're talking about, um, you've already got riots on the street. You've got the house burnings where there was a huge influx of people um, who were put out of their homes and they turned up in Ballamurphy and in the schools, stayed in the schools and any open building that was round about. So you've had people who see themselves as the closest I could get would be to being living in a war zone and surviving. Now, an observation I want to make about that and about about your and Sam's conversation is this. The people who are part of the group that are pushing for state change are more likely to resist and be in a position to take on um, movements for change. And feminism is one of them. And feminism emerged in the 60s and, if you like, you know, became part of our lives in Belfast in the 1970s. But those progressive ideas eventually moved their way into the Republican movement. They weren't there from the start. And there's a whole block of time whenever leading women in the Republican movement said, we don't need feminism. They recognised that feminism could be a threat. Uh, could be a threat to solidarity and the the kind of discourse of unifying women, regardless of everything else, could also be seen as a push against republicanism. Or nationalism. Do you understand where I'm getting what I'm getting at? Uh, absolutely, and I think it's really interesting because I I taught a, a lot of loyalists, for example, about the 1960s. Um, now this is slightly different, but it's it, it, there's the same basic sort of notion to what what we had the conversation about. And to me, it was that idea of young people in the 1960s 
having on the one hand the pressures of the parent generation. Now, we talk about that in the 1950s and 60s across Britain. You have the post-war generation, you have the, the, the adults who came through that, and then you have the young people who grew up, wanted to reject those values. It was easy enough in the UK or any other sort of Western country to sort of say, I want to listen to a different type of music. I don't want to address like my dad. Whereas in Northern Ireland to the North, you had these traditions that people were brought up with. So you had on republicanism, there was a tradition there of political resistance in loyalism and unionism. You had the orange and the sort of, um, those sort of institutions. So young people were influenced by, you know, the new wave of Bob Dylan, the sort of new culture that was emerging, but they were going home to these houses. I think a lot of the time, and I'm thinking of loyalism particularly here, where they were still very inculcated with orangeism and the traditional notion of gender roles and, and that type of thing. So I always find that there's like a double wall that people had to break through here. So I think in terms of feminism, what you say is really interesting in, in um, its relationship to the Republican movement, that it wasn't sort of there at the start. It, it happened you know, it was a struggle Over within time, a struggle. It was a, you're absolutely right. It was a struggle within a struggle and quite a successful struggle within a struggle and struggle still to go. Within, yeah, within yeah. loyal, within loyalism, within unionist community, if you're part of a community that sees itself as under attack, defending its position. Um, and, and this applies not just here, this applies to other transitional societies and other societies in conflict. Um, the communities, the people, the structures that are defending the status quo, if you like, um, are less friendly to other um, forces of change as well. You know, will be more resistant and maintain more resistance to other forces of change as well, including, crucially, feminism. Because of this threat that feminism poses to the status quo, whatever the status quo is, at any given time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is that is something that's making me sort of uncomfortable. Is not the right word, but it's it's, it's provoking thought within my head at how how we adjust this. And it's also quite evident in how we treat those voices that we bring forward in loyalism. Um, now, don't get me wrong, they're not the only ones to be shot down. Um, there is a lot of, if you look at social media and you look at what Stacey Graham and a few others put up with, the abuse is a different level. It's a different type of abuse. So they'll have a go at Moore Holmes and it'll be attacking his ideas and maybe calling him a planter or whatever. But when they attack a, a young lady, and it doesn't matter whether it's a loyalist or a republic, when they, when they attack somebody who's female, it's a lot more personal and vitriolic and it's about how they look and how they act. And yeah. it, it's, it's not just about what they're saying anymore. They might, might gloss over that Stacey yeah. said something about the constitutional position, but they'll get torn into how she looks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's such a the fact that she'll actually attack her family. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it seems to be a different level when we, when we uh, sort of approach this with, with women. And it's a very uncomfortable as a man trying to uh, sort of, deal with this because I don't do it but I can't see why other men do it I, I really just don't understand that that psyche um, where do you think that sort of breeds from well I think it amplifies the structures of society really Sam do you know um, I mean lots of strong women forthright women your own family across all of our communities uh, the fact that Feminism has been fought for 
and battled for and made progress within republicanism and within working class communities um, in nationalist areas. As I say, it's a struggle that's ongoing. It's not won. It's not over. It's, you know, there's a long way to go. But whenever you, as you say, and you, and you note very well how women are, public women in public are attacked, I, I do think that as simply amplifying, it's the kind of thing that you see in the red tops as well. And it may not be voiced in the same way, but, you know, women seen as objects is it, it, familiar in the daily media all over. The fact that it's voiced in, in these um, shameful ways, um, I don't think it's a comment on loyalism or I don't think it's a comment on uh, any individual. I, I do think that it's a very broad social problem that finds its niche. Some people find their voice and their resentments and their frustrations and articulate them and take them out against women. Yeah, I mean, I know that the PUP in particular were very good at, at sort of mobilising the feminist voice within it. Um, and that had a lot to do with where the leadership was going at that point. So it, again, you're down to that intersectionality. We, the PUP recognised that working class women had a voice, were strong and promoted that. But it doesn't seem to be reflected as, as much in the other parties. And I will caveat that by saying at one point we did have, I think, was it three of our local parties all had female leaders, That's uh, right. including the first and deputy first minister. Yeah. So yeah. that looked yeah. good. But yeah. it was it was what came behind that that was the issue. That sort of yeah. you put those those symbols up there. Look, we, we are accepting and we are diverse and we have women leading yeah. leading the way. Yeah. But the bulk coming behind that was masculine um, and, and misogynistic at some point as well. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right; it's a, it's the system that hinders this. It really is. Yeah, and you know it's important to have prominent women. It really is, and I agree with you about the PUP and strong women coming forward and you know grassroots organisations and grassroots movements, you know, being able to take on discourses that um, the more middle class sides of the movement, if you like, um, sides of unionism didn't and couldn't, you know, for some of the reasons that I've said. Um, but what I want to also say is that women should be entitled to be as good or as poor politicians as men are. The fact that women are present doesn't mean, and this is not any comment on any woman who's prominent and present, I wish her well, um, but the fact that women are present doesn't mean that gender issue, that she can address gender issues. Gender issues are the responsibility of everybody who has power. And seeing gender issues is one of the things that intersectionality enables and allows for and calls for. I think that that's really interesting what you and Sam were touching upon there because I think we might have talked about it when we met up for a coffee, Eilish, um, last year. But when I was involved in Her Loyal Voice, which was to give voice to loyalist women from a grassroots perspective and to talk about the often unheard uh, articulations of progressive attitudes about um, bodily autonomy and, and other feminist issues that actually do uh, exist quite strongly in the loyalist working class but aren't often heard because they're not projected through the political means of you know whatever the predominant party is. But the, the reason why that enterprise sort of eventually faltered was because it was becoming too stressful 
for the person who put it together, a, a, a woman from Tigers Bay originally, because she was getting so much abuse from other loyalist women. Now, in this situation, it was a rural-urban divide, and it was um, sort of traditional attitudes around these things. We've talked about about bodily autonomy and you know the right to choose and all all the sort of things that are important at the moment in terms of uh, discourse. And and that's ultimately why it floundered. It wasn't mainly it wasn't any social media abuse of, uh, about you know people's looks. Although what Sam says are, is absolutely right, and what you say is important because it's not unique to loyalism or republicanism or our our little corner of the world here. It's a sort of deeply embedded problem. But it was very very upsetting for me to witness something I was involved in and helped facilitate fall apart because it was the sort of. Um, pettiness of small differences really within one community not and i'm not um, belittling i think those people had valid opinions but it's just the way you articulate them have a civic dialogue rather than abuse people it shows you too gareth what was at stake when you say petty differences um yes and no there was a lot at stake in having progressive feminist loyalist voices heard a lot at stake for a lot of women um, who felt their positions threatened. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in response to what you've just said. That's not because I know this, but I'm also drawing on, you know, what I learned from Kim- Kimberly Crenshaw whenever she went into a black community in L.A., to investigate domestic violence within the black community. Women wouldn't speak and they wouldn't speak because the men in their community would be, were already labelled as violent, were already facing the onslaught of racist hatred they faced. And these women, in a sense, if I'm not putting it too strongly, protected the men to some extent, would not speak about the violence that they experienced within their home because of the damage it would do to the black African-American community. Now, I'm not saying it's the same thing that you're encountering, but there is an echo of women who are in very different situations in rural areas and whose position in rural areas within unionism is very different and from their point of view requires protection. And it's threatened. I mean, I think it's a remarkable achievement too to pose a threat to a discourse such that you're attacked in that way. I mean, it's it's a it's a sad and very disappointing thing to be behind progressive voices and for the women involved to feel they can't take any more. I think you've you've made a completely uh, you know. It's a profound comment, really. It's the high stakes. I, I said petty differences. I didn't um, phrase that particularly well. But what I meant was it's um, within the one ideology, the broad sort of, you know, the differences within the ideology, um, which aren't petty differences. But, but high stakes is exactly, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's high stakes. And that's something we've encountered. And we talked to John Barry last week about this idea of, and I know Sam's experienced this slightly, where if you even step outside the fold, and I'm not saying this is particular just to loyalism, but if you step outside the fold and say, 
Uh, well, I don't particularly agree with what I've been brought up to believe. I'd like to question that or maybe have a conversation about it. Immediately, there'd be a tidal wave of people behind you saying, you can't say that, you're not one of us anymore, you've let the tribe down. And, you know, that's, then that shuts people's confidence down. They don't feel able to talk anymore about how they feel or about new ideas. And, you know, John Barry was talking about the language around human rights and how, in this instance, loyalists see that as a Republican idea whereas human rights should be a universal idea and then that's the aim debate and progress absolutely and isn't it so interesting too just on foot of what you're saying as you're talking i'm listening to you and imagining the people involved in these positions that you're that you're outlining and being a woman you see in our society traditionally has been to occupy a space that's relatively powerless and where you get away with things that men in the same communities do not get away with. Um, I mean, throughout the Troubles, there was, um, it used to be called the Wednesday Women's Club, where women from community groups could go to each other's community. And they carried on doing that throughout very, very hard years of the Troubles. Their partners, spouses, couldn't have done the same thing couldn't have gone into each other's communities, couldn't have sat discussing whatever interested them or done crafts together or couldn't have done any of these things. And I've often felt that there was an underground movement there of women working away, not because they were doing community relations, if you like, not because, but because they were interested in getting together and seeing the crack and sharing the crack and and there was a certain sense of getting away with something that the men weren't looking at, that the men weren't seeing and weren't interested in because it was powerless. So it's, it's, it's worth bearing in mind and it's worth bearing in mind whenever any critical issue comes up that sometimes a way to deal with it or a way to move it forward is to start the conversation with people who appear to have the least. Yeah, I came from a... As I said, my mother brought me and my brother up. Um, I came from a strong feminist background, but I also came from a background that was very political. Um, and I was encouraged to keep trying courses and stuff. And I, I did the, it was a community development certificate up at Ulster University that used to be, you go out one day a week. I did a few th- through Farset and the, the Springfield Linear Community Development Programme, predominantly attended by females because they could get away, as you said, with being there and debating ideas and discussing things mm-hmm. where... I was usually the only man in the room, apart from maybe the tutor, because men couldn't do that because you had to take a side and you had to defend your side, whether it was right or wrong, whether you agreed with it. You, you sort of felt that you were in the trenches and you had to stick to it, where the women were sort of given that free reign to go and do this. But that, to me, should then mean that they're in a better position to guide the community because they have had this conversation. And they this don't experience. have the power, Sam. Yeah, they don't have that, the power. Yeah, and then that that's, that, you're exactly right. It, it's we, we give them the, the, the opportunity to do these things and then we don't empower them to follow it up and actually make something off the opportunity that we're giving them. It's like, here's the cake, but you can only look through it, the window at it, you can't actually eat it. It's 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 horrendous. I mean, you talk about the glass ceiling, we just put glass the whole way around there, women, and just, you can do these things, but we're going to give you no opportunity to, to fulfil what the potential is there. Uh, you, you're, you're totally right. And some, as Gareth says, some of the stuff you're saying tonight is totally profound and it's rocking me. I'm sort of, I'm, I know I'm not always looking at the screen, but I'm actually thinking about what you're saying and trying to 
trying to think how how this has played into my life over the time because you, you've nailed it. You have really nailed it tonight. Um, I suppose. I suppose what we should really do at some point is talk about constitutional change because me and Gareth talked about something else before you came on, mm-hmm. um, and it was the flashcards. Oh yes, yeah. How did you get? How did you find out about the flashcards? Oh, Google, Google is brilliant. Google oh, is fantastic. The, um, it was a report. The report was published in early 2020 by University of Ulster, and there's like a sort of it's in it's in the appendices. There's information about the work you've done with the flashcards, which myself yeah. and Sam thought was. Yeah. A really innovative way of yeah. prompting dialogue, ultimately. Yeah, well, uh, you know, practice what you preach, uh, Gareth. I've just said to you, you know, sometimes work with people who are, who are powerless. Whenever the constitutional conversation started to take off post-Brexit, partly triggered by Brexit, triggered by politics as well, and triggered by demographics eventually too, you know, those things were recognised. But whenever I kind of caught the word in the wind, if you like, of constitutional conversations beginning to happen, um, of course there was the, Ireland's future, there was the big event. But it was before then and, and around about then that I started to think, how would people... Uh, in the place that I come from and places like it, how would people have constitutional conversations? Where would you start? What does it mean? And, you know, with long years, um, long years of experience of working educationally in working class unionist and nationalist districts and using, you know, community empowerment teaching methods uh, to enable people to bring their own experience to bear in the learning experience. You know, not to feel that it's the theories or the books, but that your the, the authority of your own experience of life is vital and valuable. How could I enable people to enter that conversation using that knowledge, using what they know about themselves, their identities, the world around them, the place they live in? And, you know, <laughs> that led me to draw up four little flashcards with simple questions on the front, some information on the back and friendly, conversation friendly and try them out with um, women from the Falls Women's Centre and the Shankle Women's Centre who came together uh, and tried out these flashcards with me. And of course, the experience was... <laughs> Card changing, let's say, because I had to rewrite the cards with their feedback. But they thoroughly enjoyed the experience. They loved the crack in the conversation. And there was no, I mean, people spoke their minds, said what they had to say and what mattered to them and what was and what they didn't know and what they'd like to know. Do you know, all of that happened. And, um, you know, so I reproduced the cards and used them several times since then. And, and even simplified them since then. But my belief at the time was, and my belief still is, that people could take those cards and use them anywhere. It didn't have to be, if you like, so-called or whatever, cross-community. People could use them anywhere to inform themselves about what it's about. What does this mean? Where does this constitutional question come from? And so, for example, the cards, quote, 
the Good Friday Agreement. You know, they show people, this is where it comes from. This is what you're facing. What, what are your concerns? What are your hopes? Do you know? And it takes people through a structured conversation that um, enables them to have their say and to listen to other people crucially having their say. So whenever you say a conversation, it really is a listening conversation because it's about enabling people to have to respond and have their say and listen to other people having theirs. Yeah, and yeah, that I mean, can be quite uncomfortable sorry, sometimes. You, you sort of, you do this. I mean, I've been at the Ballymun with the, the Tortoise Shack, the guys that help us out. And and you're answering questions in, a, in an environment where you you know it's not going to go down too well. But it's a chance to actually put that across. And what I liked about the flashcards is because they are just cards with words, it's like we, we've discussed before, if you put out the, the paraphernalia before an election, you take off the flags and the party's names and people had to vote on policy alone, the elections here would be a totally different thing. But we, we complicate things with symbology and, and colours and, and people then become tribal. But but these these flashcards, I think we should be using these flashcards now. Whether you want constitutional change or not, these flashcards would enable you to have the answers and have the, the, the sort of strategy to go into debates. Because I'm looking at it going, I, my constitutional position is I want to stay within the United Kingdom. So I, I'm looking at these going now, how do I make that argument that that's the best for my children and my yeah. grandchildren and my great-grandchildren from those cards? How can I do that? Yeah. Um, I mean, because I was speaking to somebody recently who's actually from Scotland and has no political allegiances here whatsoever, but has lived in the South and the North and has no wish to live in the South again, as, as they say, because it's so expensive. And, and that was their lived experience. And it's nothing to do with... Irish, Ulster, Protestant, Catholic, it was just because that's the way they've seen it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we need to get down to in this conversation. How does it going to affect people living in Ballamurphy, living on the Shankle? How are they going to live day to day? How does this work? Um, So, yeah, the flashcards to me are a revelation because they remove the stigma of having to take a side. You know, it's it's a conversation. It really is a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Taking the side is vital, as you're saying yourself. You're Governance for you as part of the United Kingdom is profoundly important to you, economically important. You know, what you're saying, I'm just repeating back to yourself, so that it is really, really important where people have an opportunity to say what's important and why it's important, to express their hopes and fears. and. You know, me listening to you, I find it interesting to hear that. And you could hear me saying what matters to me. And and that's what the that's what the idea of the the idea is behind the cards, to enable conversations that are not about persuading anybody of anything, but of enabling the conversation to take place. Now, people who want to persuade, obviously people are going to be out there wanting to persuade a constituency and the fringes of that constituency and the don't knows and the uncertain people uh, of what's best for them. So it's a conversation that's happening. And as far as I can see, um, some loyalist women are involved in it. Certainly working class unionist women are involved in it when they want to be, you know, when they want to be. But they're free to do that in the way that I think is not open. Um, mostly to men from the same communities. 
unless they're perhaps having the conversations and I, you know, we don't know about it. They're having the conversations in their, their, um, men's groups or their, what they call men's sheds. I can't see that, but maybe, maybe that's happening. I think, you know, I mean, myself and Sam have talked about this and, you know, Ireland's future and, uh, New Ireland, um, the sort of different enterprises that have been set up. I mean, they're really important for people who, want to see momentum towards um a, a new a different Ireland, a reunified Ireland. Um but the one thing you you talk about the private conversations or conversations going on and it's important for people's feelings of safety and ability to open up uh that that, that take place in those sort of um quiet corners as it were, you know, clo- closed door behind closed doors. But the thing that um optic for the optics and again I'm just playing devil's advocate here but something like um, Ireland's future, loyalty for me, and it might be going on behind the scenes, but in the public debates, there's very little talked about loyalism or how loyalism will be accommodated in a new Ireland. And for me, I have no skin in the game, as you know. Um, I just won't. I mean, I've got to the stage now. I have talked about it in the podcast, and um, myself and Sam have talked about it. I've gone on a bit of a journey over the last number of years. I sort of find myself being open to this idea of a new Ireland, but um, ultimately it's based on what what's best for my daughter's future, and and that's the simple thing. That's because for me, politics is about well being, people's happiness, what's a bit better future. But the one thing that always concerns me, and because I've got so many friends in the loyalist community, and I've built up those networks and friendships, and I've developed a sense of empathy, I suppose, towards mm-hmm. people who've gone through the the worst days of the troubles from from that side of the community. Is it there's a real? I I detect anyway a fear of the intangible of the unknown. It's not as sharp as it would have been pre troubles, where you had the sort of idea of you know, I know Billy Hutchinson's talking about you know. You know, he was always told. Uh, the famous one that always comes to mind is when him and his friends were playing on the Crumlin Road back in the nineteen sixties. The game that they used to play was run up the steps of Holy Cross Church and try and get back down them again without the priest capturing you, putting you in the catacombs, and transferring you down to the priest-ridden state. Now that, that that was all from his mother. His mother made him believe that. Yeah. So. I don't think the the fear is based on those mythologies anymore, but there's still a fear of the unknown. And what I would like to see from Ireland's future and any of these enterprises is tr- trying to take into account loyalism. What will happen? Because you talk about it in that in that report from 2020, it's going to be these marginalised, disadvantaged communities on both sides that are going to be heavily impacted by any constitutional change. Because if people do suddenly decide that they're going to take up arms... It's not going to be middle class people who are going to fill the yeah. thick end of it. It's going to yeah. be the working classes again. So yeah. what way do you think loyalism can be and, and, and loyalism's fears about this New Ireland can be better accommodated in on those platforms? I think there's there's been, although I'm speaking from as an observer, not an insider, but there's been an invitation to um, loyalist spokespeople to take a chair or to take a space. And and some um, pro-union people, some people from unionist backgrounds have spoken at events for Ireland's future and have spoken certainly um, 
privately with the constitutional conversations group that I'm a part of. Um, you know, have spoken in rooms where, you know, it, it, what was said in the room didn't go outside the room. And, you know, I, I've always welcomed those invitations from people just to find out what is it, what, what's your thinking? You know, we want to hear from you what your thinking is and we want to tell you what ours is. And that's always been very welcome. I think the difficulty for um, people who want to engage in conversations is that if there isn't, this is easy for me to say, but it, it's genuine. If there isn't leadership, if there isn't political leadership, that enables those conversation and the, the the political leadership needn't be sanctioning public conversations. The political leadership needs to sanction even internal conversations that people can have to explore how they are facing the future, how they are facing uh, the debate that's in front of them and the referendum that appears to be on the horizon that people seem to be very sure about. I think that there's leadership required for loyalist and unionist communities to equip people to have their say and to make their voices known and to do it eventually in public, to have venues and events where they open their doors to saying, this is what matters to us about union. And in a sense, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking to myself, it's all very well me saying these things. It's really not up to me to suggest, whereas what I'm drawn on is my community education experience. Here's how I would go about such and such a thing if I was faced with it. I mean, people who are strongly unionist and for whom the union is matters so much, you know, and matters culturally. It matters beyond the economics even of it. Um, those people will vote no in any referendum on Irish unity and they're entitled to do so. Mm -hmm. I think, but what's also needed is for those people and for all of us, voices that have something to say, that want to raise issues, that want to have a say in the future should be heard. I mean, that, that's, you know, j just thinking about... Um events recently, you know, myself and Sam were at the Lyric last Friday to see The Man Who Swallowed a Dictionary about the life of David Irvine, the play written by our good friend Bino Niblock. And one thing that always comes back to me when I, when I hear about these sort of things, um, something Davey said to me 20 years ago when I met him, which was, every unionist leader who goes into negotiations overplays their hand and it means there's diminishing returns. And it's all, and I mean, this goes back to the mid 80s. I remember John, John McMichael wrote an article for Fortnite about the bluff of unionist politicians and how that then sort of, you know, it doesn't do anything for the community that they represent, the working class community. I think what we are talking about here, it's not about being converted or coming out any less of a loyalist or a unionist. And, you know, obviously Sam is a very good friend of mine, but I'm going to give him credit here because he's gone down to Ballymun. He's come on the podcast and he said, I'm proud to be a loyalist and here's the reasons why I think we should uh, retain the union. And there needs to be more voices like that. It's not about being, um, it's about um, disagreeing respectfully, ultimately. It's about saying, okay, you've got this 
uh, ambition for uh, a different Ireland, a f- future reunified Ireland. But here's why I want to be uh, be part of the union. Here's why I'm proud to be a loyalist. And here's why what you think about loyalism isn't actually always a lived experience. So it's yeah. about having the confidence, yeah. the tools to sort of go out into the community and say, yeah. this is who I am. You might not agree with it, but we'll have to hear each other out. Yeah. Um, the questions that Sam raised earlier about what people want to know about this idea of a new Ireland or a reunified Ireland, however you wish to put it, about the economy, about health, about living standards, house prices, all of those things. People in Republican areas want to know the same. They want the details. Um some of us have looked across at what happened in Scotland uh, pre-IndyRef and there was a mobilisation in working class communities also um, of conversations. They called them uh, cafe conversations where people just gathered together over a cup of coffee and had conversations about IndyRef. But of course they were in preparation mode. They were in government preparation mode and people were informed by, you know, a document that was three inches thick as to what independence would mean for Scotland in every detail. And the the day will come, I think, when people will start putting out their papers and saying, here's what's an offer in a United Kingdom of the future. Here's what's on offer in a new Ireland. And that's going to be a very interesting time because I, I do envisage that before any referendum, um, documents like the Good Friday Agreement document, which was a very readable, small document, um, backed up by, you know, three inches of legislation, um, that, that people will have information by then, by the time a referendum comes. But that relies, of course, on preparation being made in the Republic and and in Britain. And I don't know how long off that will be. I mean, just, just to come back on the fact that if, if loyalists are having these talks, if they're not, they should be. You know, yeah. it's, it's remissive leadership not to prepare for worst case scenarios. If you want to look at it that way, uh, how, how, we, how we guide our community, how we look after our community, if... It becomes a 32-county state. How we work the system, we need to be looking at if this does come, if, what are they called, the doomsday does come. God, I hate using those words. Um, if you get to that stage, how, how do we look after our people? And and, this, and you're saying there, Alicia, about people in Ballamurphy and the Falls need to know they do because they're at the minute at, have a free at the point of service, health service at the minute, and they're not going to have that. Um, kids who are leaving school at the minute, maybe without real great job prospects, there's a housing executive there that can provide housing. It's not great, but it's a lot better than what's on offer elsewhere at the moment. And I think that's the things we need to be concentrating on. And, and as working class and under underprivileged, it's wrong to say as well, under-resourced communities exactly. go, we need to be looking at how we support those communities in any change. Um, now, on the back of that, I would say we also need to be looking at how we go back to the United Kingdom and say we deserve better. We don't need the crumb, crumbs from this cake. We need the slice of the cake. Yeah. Um, but we want you to empower us to be able to put back to that cake. Because at the minute, it's just take, take, take. And that can't be sustained. We need we need to look how we make Northern Ireland work. Um, the bar, bar a phrase of, of the Ulster Unionists, make it work for all. Um, 
but we need to be looking at how we provide jobs and housing for, for the communities coming because if we're going to stay part of the United Kingdom, we need to be asking for more to provide better. End off. We need to be sustainable on our own. Um, so yes, the conversation should be having how we how we galvanize the union, as I would say it, how we make it more sort of appealable to everybody, no matter what side of the community they come from. Um, but we also need to be looking at what ifs. I mean, we need to be prepared. We need to have that conversation because because there are people in our community who who won't understand what it means, and we need to be guiding them in a way that's not. It's not rhetoric. It's a way that's broken down for them. So if this happens, this is where you go for your health care. If this happens, this is how you apply for this. If this happens, your car insurance will switch this way. We need to be looking at that. And it's not because we want to enable it. It's because you have to be prepared for this. You need, you need, that's what leadership is. The uncomfortable decisions and the uncomfortable scenarios. And that's where we need to be. Um, One yeah. of the things that's happening, Sam, is that there's research going on into the very things that you're you're speaking about, you know, into um, education north and south, healthcare north and south. And one of the, the problems of universities very often is that the knowledge produced in universities or the academic research that's produced very often never filters down to the people who need it most and who are most affected by it. So there's a, a thing called the ARINS Project A-R-I-N-S, um, that's carrying out research in the very areas that you're interested in. And I would I'd recommend that as a site for you to go to. And then also you've got the Northern Ireland Development Group who are publishing papers um, very much along the lines of the very questions that you're raising there. They're calling for a unionism that's forward-looking, that that focuses on deprivation and, you know, inequality. Regardless of regardless of identity, you know, and, and they've recently published a paper calling for unionism to take a, to have a more progressive face. And I think we need to also, as loyalists, know that we're having a conversation about this in a comfortable society where we're not going to be lundified as such. <laughs> but um, it's not a negotiation. I'm not here negotiating with somebody that this is what we're going to do. Our terms of surrender. So this is having the, the discussion, and hopefully, out of that discussion one side or the other can understand the other's arguments and then we can move forward from there as adults in the room as such. Um, God, adults in the room, that'll be good for Northern Ireland politics, wouldn't it? Um, but yes, we, we need to be looking at how we do this because you, you know and I know there are certain sections of our community who are slightly better off and no matter what way it goes, they have a cushion. The landing won't be as hard for them either way. But the people without the cushion, people who are living day to day, hand to mouth as such, are going to feel the impact straight away of whatever way this goes. And as Gareth said, when the trouble kicks off, either way, it's always those communities that get it first. Absolutely. You know, and that's that's where that's where I would like to see if we have the conversation, we can we can offset that. We can get to the position where no matter what way this goes, we're in a position where we can control the fallout to such an extent. Um, and again, I'll probably take pelters from both sides for this. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll either be too loyalist or, or too Republican in my outlook, but sure, that that comes with the territory, doesn't it? Absolutely. Well, look, Eilish, I think we could go on all night, and hopefully you'll agree to come back on to the podcast at some stage in the future. But I don't know about Sam, but I learned a lot tonight, um, and every day is a school day, and that's a good thing. So thank you very much, and also... Thank you for uh, reading the poem at the beginning. It was very profound and powerful. And again, I'd advocate that people get in touch with Eilish and and, um, get a copy of that. I'll certainly be doing that myself. I've loved 
the conversation with the two of you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you very much.